Chapter Six of Emily Bronte by Agnes Mary Frances Robinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Girlhood at Haworth. The next two years passed very solitarily for Emily at Haworth. The Brontes were too poor for all to stay at home, and since it was definitely settled that Emily could not live away, she worked hard at home while her sisters went out in the world to gain their bread. She had no friend besides her sisters. Far-off Anne was her only confidant. Outside her own circle, the only person that she cared to meet was Charlotte's friend Ellen, and, of course, Ellen did not come to Haworth while Charlotte was away. Branwell, too, was absent. His first engagement was as usher in a school, but mortified by the boy's sarcasms on his red hair and downcast smallness, he speedily threw up his situation and returned to Haworth to confide his wounded vanity to the tender mercies of the rough and valiant Emily, or to loaf about the village seeking readier consolation. Then he went as a private tutor to a family in Broughton and Furness. One letter of his, dispatched to some congenial spirit in Haworth long since dead, has been lent to me by the courtesy of Mr. William Wood, one of the last of Branwell's companions, in whose possession the torn faded sheet remains. Much of it is unreadable from accidental rents and the purposed excision of private passages, and part of that which can be read cannot be quoted, such as it is, the letter is valuable as showing what things in life seemed desirable and worthy of attainment to this much-hoped-in brother of the austere Emily and the courageous Charlotte, the pious Anne. Broughton in Furness, March 15th. Old Knave of Trumps. Don't think I have forgotten you, though I have delayed so long in writing to you. It was my purpose to send you a yarn as soon as I could find materials to spin one with, and it is only just now I have had time to turn myself round and know where I am. If you saw me now you would not know me, and you would laugh to hear the character the people give me. Oh, the falsehood and hypocrisy of this world! I am fixed in a little town retired by the seashore, embowered in woody hills that rise round me, huge, rocky, and capped with clouds. My employer is a retired county magistrate and large landowner of a right-hearty, generous disposition. His wife is a quiet, silent, amiable woman. His sons are two fine-spirited lads. My landlord is a respectable surgeon and six days out of seven is drunk as a lord. His wife is a bustling, chattering, kind-hearted soul. His daughter, oh, death and damnation. Well, what am I? That is, what do they think I am? A most sober, abstemious, patient, mild-hearted, virtuous, gentlemanly philosopher, the picture of good works, the treasure-house of righteous thought. Cards are shuffled under the tablecloth, glasses are thrust into the cupboard if I enter the room. I take neither spirit, wine, nor malt liquors. I dress in black and smile like a saint or martyr. Every lady says, what a good young gentleman is the Postlewaite's tutor. This, in fact, as I am a living soul, and right comfortably do I laugh at them, but in this humor do I mean them to continue. I took a half-year's farewell of old friend Whiskey at Kendall the night after I left. There was a party of gentlemen at the Royal Hotel. 
I joined them and ordered in supper and toddy as hot as hell. They thought I was a physician and put me into the chair. I gave them some toasts of the stiffest sort, washing them down at the same time till the room spun round and the candles danced in their eyes. One was a respectable old gentleman, with a powdered head, rosy cheeks, fat paunch, and ringed fingers. He let off with a speech, and in two minutes, in the very middle of a grand sentence, stopped, wagged his head, looked wildly round, stammered, coughed, stopped again, called for his slippers, and so the waiter helped him to his bed. Next, a tall Irish squire and a native of the land of Israel began to quarrel about their countries, and in the warmth of argument discharged their glasses, each at his neighbor's throat instead of his own. I recommended blisters, bleeding, here illegible, so I flung my tumbler on the floor too and swore I'd join old Ireland. A regular rumpus ensued, but we were tamed at last, and I found myself in bed next morning with a bottle of porter, a glass, and a corkscrew beside me. Since then I have not tasted anything stronger than milk and water, nor I hope shall I till I return at midsummer, when we will see about it. I am getting as fat as Prince Wynne at Springhead, and as godly as his friend Parson Winterbottom. My hand shakes no longer. I write to the bankers at Ulverston, with Mr. Postlewaite, and sit drinking tea and talking slander with old ladies. As to the young ones, I have one sitting by me just now, fair-faced, blue-eyed, dark-haired, sweet eighteen. She little thinks the devil is as near her. I was delighted to see thy note, old squire, but don't understand one sentence. Perhaps you will know what I mean. You tell me, likewise, about your keeping two hens and a cock, as if I did not know you kept a cock long since, and a game-cock too by Jupiter. How are all about you? I long, all torn next, everything about Haworth folk. Does little Nosey think I have forgotten him? No, by Jupiter. Nor is Alec either. I'll send him a remembrance one of these days. But I must talk to someone prettier. So good night, old boy. Write directly, and believe me to be thine, the philosopher. Branwell's boasted reformation was not kept up for long. Soon he came back as heartless, as affectionate, as vain, as unprincipled as ever, to laugh and loiter about the steep street of Haworth. Then he went to Bradford as a portrait painter, and so impressive his audacity, actually succeeded for some months in gaining a living there, although his education was of the slenderest, and judging from the specimens still treasured in Haworth, his natural talent on a level with that of the average new student in any school of art. His tawny mane, his pose of untaught genius, his verses in the poet's corner of the paper, could not forever keep afloat this untaught and thriftless portrait painter of twenty. Soon there came an end to his painting there. He disappeared from Bradford suddenly, heavily in debt, and was lost to sight, until, unnerved, a drunkard and an opium-eater, he came back to home and Emily at Haworth. Meanwhile, impetuous Charlotte was growing nervous and weak, gentle Anne consumptive and dejected, in their work away from home, and Emily was toiling from dawn till dusk with her old servant Tabby, for the old aunt who never cared for her, and the old father always courteous and distant. 
they knew the face of necessity more nearly than any friends those bronte girls and the pinch of poverty was for their own foot therefore were they always considerate to any that fell into the same plight during the christmas holidays of eighteen thirty seven old tabby fell on the steep and slippery street and broke her leg she was already nearly seventy and could do little work now her accident laid her completely aside leaving emily charlotte and anne to spend their christmas holidays in doing the housework and nursing the invalid miss branwell anxious to spare the girl's hands and her brother-in-law's pocket insisted that tabby should be sent to her sister's house to be nursed and another servant engaged for the parsonage tabby she represented was fairly well off her sister in comfortable circumstances the parsonage kitchen might supply her with broths and jellies in plenty but why waste the girl's leisure and scanty patrimony on an old servant competent to keep herself mr bronte was finally persuaded and his decision made known but the girls were not persuaded tabby so they averred was one of the family and they refused to abandon her in sickness they did not say much but they did more than say they starved when the tea was served the three sat silent fasting next morning found their will yet stronger than their hunger no breakfast they did the day's work and dinner came still they held out wan and sunk then the superiors gave in the girls gained their victory no stubborn freak but the right to make a generous sacrifice and to bear an honourable burden that christmas of course there could be no visiting nor the next tabby was slow in getting well but she did not outweary the patience of her friends two years later charlotte writes to her old schoolfellow december twenty first eighteen thirty nine we are at present and have been during the last month rather busy as for that space of time we have been without a servant except the little girl to run errands poor tabby became so lame that she was at length obliged to leave us she is residing with her sister in a little house of her own which she bought with her own savings a year or two since she is very comfortable and wants nothing as she is near we see her very often in the meantime emily and i are sufficiently busy as you may suppose i manage the ironing and keep the rooms clean emily does the baking and attends to the kitchen we are such odd animals that we prefer this mode of contrivance to having a new face among us besides we do not despair of tabby's return and she shall not be supplanted by a stranger in her absence i excited aunt's wrath very much by burning the clothes the first time i attempted iron but i do better now human feelings are queer things i am much happier blackleading the stoves making the beds and sweeping the floors at home than i should be living like a fine lady anywhere else the year eighteen forty found emily branwell and charlotte all at home together unnerved and dissipated as he was branwell was still a welcome presence his gay talk still awakened glad promises in the ambitious and loving household which hoped all things from him his mistakes and faults they pardoned thinking poor souls that the strong passions which led him astray betokened a strong character and not a powerless will it was still to branwell that they looked for the fame of the family 
their poems their stories were to these girls but a legitimate means of amusement and relief the serious business of their life was to teach to cook to clean to earn or save the mere expense of their existence no dream of literary fame gave a purpose to the quiet days of emily bronte charlotte and branwell more impulsive more ambitious had sent their work to southey to coleridge to wordsworth in vain pathetic hope of encouragement or recognition not so the sterner emily to whom expression was at once a necessity and a regret emily's brain emily's locked desk these and nothing else knew the degree of her passion her genius her power and yet acknowledged power would have been sweet to that dominant spirit meanwhile the immediate difficulty was to earn a living even those patient and courageous girls could not accept the thought of a whole lifetime spent in dreary governessing by charlotte and anne in solitary drudgery by housekeeping emily one way out of this hateful vista seemed not impossible of attainment for years it was the wildest hope the cherished dream of the author of wuthering heights and the author of villette and what was this dear and daring ambition to keep a lady school at haworth far enough off difficult to reach it looked to them this paltry commonplace ideal of theirs for the house with its four bedrooms would have to be enlarged for the girl's education with its anglo-french and stumbling music would have to be adorned by the requisite accomplishments this would take time time and money two luxuries most hard to get for the vicar of haworth's harassed daughters they would sigh and suddenly stop in their making of plans and drawing up of circulars it seemed so difficult one person indeed might help them miss branwell had saved out of her annuity of fifty pounds a year she had a certain sum small enough but to charlotte and emily it seemed as potent as the fairy's wand the question was would she risk it it seemed not the old lady had always chiefly meant her savings for the dear prodigal who bore her name and emily and charlotte were not her favourites the girls indeed only asked for a loan but she doubted hesitated doubted again they were too proud to take an advantage so grudgingly proffered and while their talk was still of what means they might employ while they still painfully toiled through improper french novels as the best substitute for french conversation they gave up the dream for the present and charlotte again looked out for a situation nearly a year elapsed before she found it a happy year full of plans and talks with emily and free from any more pressing anxiety than anne's delicate health always gave her sisters branwell was away and doing well as station-master at ludden and foot set off to seek his fortune in the wild wandering adventurous romantic knight-errant like capacity of clerk on the leeds and manchester railway ellen came to stay at haworth in the summer it was quite sociable and lively now in the grey house on the moors for compelled by failing health mr bronte had engaged the help of a curate and the haworth curate brought his clerical friends about the house to the great disgust of emily and the half-sentimental fluttering of pensive anne which laid on charlotte the responsibility of talking for all three in the holidays when anne was at home all the old glee and enjoyment of life returned 
there was moreover the curate bonny pleasant light-hearted good-tempered generous careless crafty fickle and unclerical to add piquancy to the situation he sits opposite to anne at church sighing softly and looking out of the corners of his eyes and she is so quiet her looks so downcast they are a picture says mary charlotte this first curate at haworth was exempted from emily's liberal scorn he was a favourite at the vicarage a clever bright-spirited and handsome youth greatly in miss branwell's good graces he would tease and flatter the old lady with such graciousness as made him ever sure of a welcome so that his daily visits to mr bronte's study were nearly always followed up by a call in the opposite parlour when miss branwell would frequently leave her upstairs retreat and join in the lively chatter she always presided at the tea-table at which the curate was a frequent guest and her two nieces would be kept well amused all through the tea-hour by the curate's piquant sallies baffling the old lady in her little schemes of control over the three high-spirited girls none enjoyed the fun more than quiet emily always present and amused her countenance glimmering as it always did when she enjoyed herself miss ellen nucy tells me many happy legends too familiar to be quoted here record the light heart and gay spirit that emily bore in those untroubled days foolish pretty little stories of her dauntless protection of the other girls from two pressing suitors never was duenna so gallant so gay and so inevitable in compliment to the excellence of her swashing and martial outside on such occasions the little household dubbed her the major a name that stuck to her in days when the dash and gaiety of her soldiery bearing was sadly sobered down and only the courage and dauntless heart remained but in these early days of eighteen forty one emily was as happy as other healthy country girls in a congenial home she did what we did says miss nucy and never absented herself when she could avoid it life at this period must have been sweet and pleasant to her an equal uncheckered life in which trifles seemed of great importance we hear of the little joys and adventures of those days so faithfully and long remembered with a pathetic pleasurableness so slight they are and all their colour gone like pressed roses though a faint sweetness yet remains the disasters when miss branwell was cross and in no humour to receive her guests the long-expected excitement of a walk over the moors to keithley where the curate was to give a lecture the alarm and flurry when the curate finding none of the four girls had ever received a valentine proposed to send one to each on the next valentine's day no no the elders would never allow it and yet it would certainly be an event to receive a valentine still there would be such a lecture from miss branwell oh no he said i shall post them at bradford and to bradford he walked ten miles and back again so that on the eventful fourteenth of february the anxiously expected postman brought four valentines all on delicately tinted paper all enhanced by a verse of original poetry touching on some pleasant characteristic in each recipient what merriment and comparing of notes what pleased feigning of indignation the girls determined to reward him with a roland for his oliver and charlotte wrote some rhymes full of fun and raillery which all the girls signed emily 
entering into all this with much spirit and amusement, and finally dispatched in mystery and secret glee. At last this pleasant fooling came to an end. Charlotte advertised for a place and found it. While she was away she had a letter from Miss Wooler offering Charlotte the goodwill of her school at Dewsbury Moor. It was a chance not to be lost, although what inducement Emily and Charlotte could offer to their pupils it is not easy to imagine. But it was above all things necessary to make a home where delicate Anne might be sheltered, where homesick Emily could be happy, where Charlotte could have time to write, where all might live and work together. Miss Wooler's offer was immediately accepted. Miss Branwell was induced to lend the girls one hundred pounds. No answer came from Miss Wooler. Then ambitious Charlotte, from her situation away, wrote to Miss Branwell at Haworth. September twenty ninth, 1841. Dear Aunt, I have heard nothing of Miss Wooler yet since I wrote to her intimating that I would accept her offer. I cannot conjecture the reason of this long silence, unless some unforeseen impediment has occurred in concluding the bargain. Meantime a plan has been suggested and approved by Mr. and Mrs. Blank, and others which I wish now to impart to you. My friends recommend, if I desire to secure permanent success, to delay commencing the school for six months longer, and by all means to contrive, by hook or by crook, to spend the intervening time in some school on the continent. They say schools in England are so numerous, competition so great, that without some such step toward attaining superiority we shall probably have a very hard struggle and may fail in the end. They say, moreover, that the loan of one hundred pounds which you have been so kind as to offer us will perhaps not be all required now, as Miss Wooler will lend us the furniture, and that if the speculation is intended to be a good and a successful one, half the sum at least ought to be laid out in the manner I have mentioned, thereby ensuring a more speedy repayment both of interest and principal. I would not go to France or to Paris, I would go to Brussels in Belgium. The cost of the journey there at the present rate of travelling would be five pounds. Living is there little more than half as dear as it is in England, and the facilities for education are equal or superior to any place in Europe. In half a year I could acquire a thorough familiarity with French, I could improve greatly in Italian and even get a dash at German, that is, provided my health continued as good as it is now. These are advantages which would turn to real account when we actually commenced the school, and if Emily could share them with me, we could take a footing in the world afterwards which we never can do now. I say Emily instead of Anne, for Anne might take her turn at some future period if our school answered. I feel certain while I am writing that you will see the propriety of what I say. You always like to use your money to the best advantage. You are not fond of making shabby purchases. When you do confer a favor, it is often done in style, and depend upon it. Fifty pounds or a hundred pounds thus laid out would be well employed. Of course I know no other friend in the world to whom I could apply on this subject besides yourself. I feel an absolute conviction that if this advantage were allowed us, it would be the making of us for life. Papa will perhaps think it a wild and ambitious scheme, but who ever rose in the world without ambition? When he left Ireland to go to Cambridge University, he was as ambitious as I am now. That was true. 
it must have struck a vibrant chord in the old man's breast absorbed in parish gossip and his cottage poems caring no longer for the world but only for newspaper reports of it actively idle living a resultless life of ascetic self-indulgence the vicar of haworth was very proud of his energetic past he had always held it up to his children as a model for them to copy charlotte's appeal would certainly secure her father as an ally to her cause miss branwell on the other hand would not wish for displays of ambition in her already too irrepressible nieces but she was getting old it would be a comfort to her after all to see them settled and prosperously settled through her generosity i look to you aunt to help us i think you will not refuse charlotte had said how indeed could miss branwell living in their home be happy and refuse yet many discussions went on before anxious charlotte got the answer emily whom it concerned as nearly must have listened waiting in a strange perturbation of hope and fear to leave home she knew well what it meant since she was six years old she had never left yorkshire but those months of wearying homesickness at Rowhead and halifax must have most painfully rushed back upon her memory haworth was health content the very possibility of existence to this girl to leave haworth for a strange town beyond the seas to see strange faces all around to hear and speak a strange language charlotte's welcome prospect of adventure must have taken a nightmare shape to emily and for this she must hope this she must desire plead for if necessary and at least uphold for charlotte said the thing was essential to their future and in all details of management charlotte's word was law to her sisters even emily the independent indomitable emily so resolute in keeping to any chosen path looked to charlotte to choose the way in practical affairs at length consent was secured written and dispatched gleeful charlotte gave notice to her employers and soon set out for home there was much to be done letters to write to brussels to lille and to london lots of work to be done besides clothes to repair it was decided that the sisters should give up their chance of the school at dewsbury manor since the site was low and damp and had not suited anne on their return from brussels they were to set up a school in some healthy seaside place in the east riding burlington was the place where their fancy chiefly dwelt to this beautiful and healthy spot fronting the sea eager pupils would flock for the benefit of instruction by three daughters of a clergyman educated abroad for six months speaking thorough french improved italian and a dash of german a scintillating programme of accomplishment danced before their eyes there were however many practical difficulties to be vanquished first the very initial step the choice of a school was hard to take charlotte writes to ellen january twentieth eighteen forty two we expect to leave england in about three weeks but we are not yet certain as to the day as it will depend on the convenience of a french lady now in london madame martial under whose escort we are to sail our place of destination is changed papa received an unfavourable account from mr or rather from mrs jenkins of the french schools in bruxelles representing them as of an inferior caste in many respects 
on further inquiry an institution at lille in the north of france was highly recommended by baptiste noel and other clergymen and to that place it is decided that we are to go the terms are fifty pounds a year for each pupil for board and french alone but a separate room will be allowed for this sum without this indulgence they are something lower i considered it kind and aunt to consent to an extra sum for a separate room we shall find it a great privilege in many ways i regret the change from bruxelles to lille on many accounts for charlotte to regret the change was for an improvement to be discovered she had set her heart on going to brussels mrs jenkins redoubled her efforts and at length discovered the pensionnat of madame Eger in the rue d'isabelle thither as all the world is aware charlotte and emily bronte both of age went to school we shall leave england in about three weeks the words had a ring of happy daring in charlotte's ears since at six years of age she had set out alone to discover the golden city romance discovery adventure were sweet promises to her she had often wished to see the world now she will see it she had thirsted for knowledge here is the source she longed to add new notes to that gamut of human character which she could play with so profound a science she shall make a masterpiece out of her acquisitions at this time her letters are full of busy gaiety giving accounts of her work making plans making fun as happy and hopeful a young woman as any that dwells in haworth parish emily is different it is she who imagined the girl in heaven who broke her heart with weeping for earth till the angels cast her out in anger and flung her into the middle of the heath to wake there sobbing for joy she did not care to know fresh people she hates strangers to walk with her bulldog keeper over the moors is her best adventure to learn new things is very well but she prizes above everything originality and the wild provincial flavor of her home what she strongly deeply loves is her moorland home her own people the creatures on the heath the dogs who always feed from her hands the flowers in the bleak garden that only grow at all because of the infinite care she lavishes upon them the stunted thorn under which she sits to write her poems is more beautiful to her than the cedars of lebanon to each and all of these she must now bid farewell it is in a different tone that she says in her adieus we shall leave england in about three weeks End of chapter six